Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. All right. let's, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, now, we've been out of Corinthians for just a little bit, so let me just fill you in on what's been going on. Uh, so you have this guy named Paul, and he writes a letter. He doesn't write a book. He writes a letter to a church. Because there were some things that were going on there. And so they had reached out to him because he's the guy that founded the church, planted the church. And they said, we're having some problems here. And the problems were kind of all over the place. You know, this is the kind of church that if you look at the issues they were dealing with, you might go, golly, I don't know that I would want to go there. They really had a lot of struggles. But to their credit, they reach out to, to Paul and they say, could you speak to some things? One, there are divisions among us. That's not good. And then there's doctrinal divisions among us, and that's not good. And we'll just be teachable. You tell us how to think through these things. And so he writes more than one letter. This is described as 1 Corinthians. It was actually his second letter to them. Really, he probably ended up writing four letters to this church, which means even after he planted them, he was investing in them and trying to help them. Isn't that a cool thing to see? Good example by Paul. But where he's been is he says, it's really interesting how God works. Because God works in ways that we probably would not. Uh, if you look at it, what, what, what they valued was people that were people of power and people of prestige. Instead, what you see is this message of the grace and forgiveness of Jesus going out through Corinth, and you see people that are considered somewhat low on the totem pole, so to speak, culturally, coming to faith in Christ. And it was a beautiful thing to watch and see. It was changing the whole landscape of Corinth. But think about how God works, and this is what Paul says. To the outside world, the cross of Jesus Christ looks like foolishness. I mean, here's your champion. Your champion is a man that is betrayed. Your champion is a man that is literally beaten within an inch of his life, that he's nailed to a cross. He's hung up in front of a massive crowd, and you go, yeah, that's my example of somebody that we wanna be like and follow. It doesn't make sense on the outside, but he said, on the inside, it is the demonstration of the grace of God to sinners like us. It is a demonstration of his power to forgive. And it shows the depths of his love. On the outside, maybe they don't get it. But on the inside, once we finally saw Jesus, it's everything to us. The second thing, he says, think about the foolishness of how God works because he works through his church. I mean, if, if, if you wanted to accomplish something, Many of you might think something like this. Well, if you're going to get the job done right, you got to do it yourself. How many of you have said something like that? I have. I have. Here's what God did. I'm going to use you to accomplish my purpose. I'm going to use you. Now, I'm, I'm just going to shoot straight here. God can do everything better, <laughs> right? Is that fair? God can do everything better than we can do it. But instead, he says, ah, it's true but you're the ones that are gonna do it. On, on a certain level, it just doesn't make any sense. But he gives a mission to the church and he says, go for it, go for it, I'm cutting you loose. We're looking in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses one through five, where he says, there's another thing that seems a little bit foolish and it's what I'm doing right now, which is preaching. Isn't that funny? Here's what he says. If you look at chapter two, starting in verse one, he says, now when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I didn't come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Did you notice what he says? He says, when I came to you, when I came to you. And then Paul tells his story. And he's alluding to something here, but to understand it, you actually have to go to the book of Acts. So let me just talk you through a little bit of a story in the book of Acts. It's where he was before he came to Corinth. He was in Athens. This is what he's alluding to. What happens right before? There was an adage when you went into Athens, Greece, and it was this. It's that it was easier to find a God in Athens than it was to find a man. There were that many gods that people were worshiping. I mean, I mean, Athens is the home of some of the greatest thinkers of all time, people that I've had to read, Socrates or Socrates to some of you, Plato, Zeno, and, and others. But this was considered to be like the intellectual hotbed of that time. Paul was there. And in Acts chapter 17, he goes to a place called the Areopagus or Mars Hill. And at Mars Hill, this is where, so to speak, the intellectual elite of that day and time would meet. And they would discuss a number of things. Obviously, they would talk about philosophy. They would talk politics. But they would also, everything that you're not supposed to do in polite company are the things that they found to be the most interesting. And they would talk about God. So Paul comes walking in and he steps up and they're all there talking about things. And Paul's like, well, I'd like to join the conversation. And so he does. And in Acts 17, that's what you see him do. Now, at the top, in Areopagus, you got to understand, he didn't get up there and there'd be like 3,000 people standing up there going, man, we were waiting for you to show up. These are the intellectual elites. You need to be thinking 30, 40, 50 people up there. Everybody else was doing their job. But that's who was waiting for him up there. And there was an interesting background to this. And it actually goes 600 years before this moment where Paul walks up at Mars Hill. And 600 years earlier, there was a plague that had hit Athens. We know a little bit about that, don't we? But a plague had hit Athens. Thousands of people were dead, and they formed the belief that one of these gods was really angry with them. Now, remember, it's easier to find a god in Athens than it is to like, meet a man. There, there are that many. So if one of the gods is angry with you, you're probably in Athens going to ask this question. Which one? Which one? And they didn't know. So what they did is they invited a Cretan in, a guy named Epimenides, who told them to send out into the city both black and white sheep. Said, send them out into the city. And with the sheep, if they lay down, if they go into the city and they lay down, he said, I want you to build an altar right there. And I want you to label the altar to the unknown God. And I want you to sacrifice the sheep on the spot. Well, they did. Epimenides came in. He gave the advice. They sent the sheep into the city. They started building altars. And on all of the altars, there was the inscription to the unknown God. And they were sacrificing the sheep so that it would eradicate the plague that was killing them. The thing is, is the plague went away. And Paul picks up on this history as he's standing there with these people. And he says, you have, you have outside of here all of these altars to the unknown God. 
And so he just picks up where they left off and he says, I want to talk to you about him. And what he says is, therefore, what you worship without knowing it, this is what I proclaim to you. Because we're talking about a God who made the world and everything in it, and he does not live in temples. Now, that's an interesting way to start because he's standing there looking around and there are temples everywhere to all of these gods. And he says, this God doesn't dwell in these temples. Mm, right where they're at, he hid it. And he says on verse, in verse 31 of Acts 17, he said, instead, he has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by a man who he designated, having provided proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. And now he's just talking about Jesus. He says, see, you, you meander around with a posture of worship, but not even knowing who you're worshiping, I'm here to tell you who it is. And it's Jesus Christ who died and who was raised. Now, he did his job, right? And you may be going, well, what was the result of this? I mean, one gutsy move. I mean, Paul goes up to talk to the intellectual elite of his day, all the credit to that guy, because at least he was saying something. And he talks about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which was all of the sermons at the beginning of the book of Acts. They were all the same thing. What was the result of him sharing this? If you look in Acts 17, 32, it was this. Uh, some scoffed at him. Others said, eh, I'll keep talking with you about it. Some believed, including Dionysius and a woman named Damaris. Wow. Now, here's why this, this, this part of the book of Acts is a little bit strange. is because before, if you read the book of Acts, when Paul had these encounters, he was normally run out of town literally for his life. He would come in and he would start to share Jesus and people would start to beat him or whatever. But they were getting this guy out of there. That didn't happen here. But also, after his time in the Areopagus or also what's called Mars Hill, he finishes what he has to say and he just walks off. He's like, all right. And off he goes. You know what he didn't do? He didn't plant a church. He was always planting a church. He would put a church in, he would put leadership in and he would go off to the next thing. He didn't do that here. There was something just a little bit different. In seminary, just so you know, people will actually discuss whether this moment in the life of Paul was a failure. They'll discuss it. Because it didn't seem to be a whole lot of, well, result. He just seemed to walk away. Tell you where I'm coming from with this guy. One, I think he's gutsy and I love it because he just goes for it. Uh, but I also think when it comes to just talking to people about Jesus, honestly, this is just the way it goes. This is just the way it goes. It's going to be a mixed bag of results. I mean, earlier, Paul was with the Jews in the synagogue in the same chapter. It says he talked with them about Jesus from the scriptures. What was the response? It says some of them believed. How many? Not a mass of them, just some of them. Friends, I'm trying to give you a word of encouragement on the front end. Paul is considered maybe one of the greatest missionaries in the history of Christianity. Even he had these moments where people are like, what an idiot. What an idiot. It's just the way that people work. Here's what we've been asked to do. We've been asked to be faithful. That's what we've been asked to do. What we have not been asked to do by God is to control everybody's reaction. By the way, nobody controlled mine. I came to Jesus by the guidance of my family and other people that poured into my life. But as my mom and dad always said, this is a choice you have to make. And they left it to me. Now, with that background in mind, you can understand what's going on in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Did you notice how Paul came? 
He describes himself, I didn't come to you with brilliance of speech. I didn't, I didn't come to you with eloquence. By the way, in Corinth, you need to remember the sophists were a big thing. These were people that liked to come in and basically devise these really creative speeches so that they could hook people in and they could develop a platform. They could garner some control. And guess what, what was the end game of all of it? And the answer is, show me the money. That's what it was. And Paul comes in after Mars Hill and he says, I didn't come to you like this. I'm not doing to you what these guys are trying to do to you. I just want you to know God loves you. Loves you enough that he would send his son to die for you and that God raised him from the dead. Take it or leave it. He didn't play the game. I didn't come to you with brilliance of speech or eloquence. By the way, Mars Hill, he could have. He didn't. He said, I tell you about Jesus crucified. I came to you in weakness. Now, how many of you would say, yeah, you know, when I think of who I want to be the pastor of a church, I want them saying, yeah, and I'm coming to you in weakness. The, the way that Paul is talking here isn't really connected to the things that we consider to be the most valuable traits of a person in a high position of leadership. I came to you in fear. I came to you trembling. Honestly, some of this, we're not even sure what he means by it. Why did he come this way? It might be a reference to his thorn in the flesh. He talks about this in 2 Corinthians. It wasn't sin. He had some physical affliction in his life. And he would go to the Lord and say, would you please remove this? This is hindering the work that you're trying to do through me. He says, I prayed this multiple times. And every time the Lord said, no, that's going to stay. And the reason is, is because in your weakness, people will see my strength. It stays. So you don't get a miracle, Paul, but what you will get in all this, you will get my grace. My grace is enough for you. And Paul says, this is how I came. I mean, what if the hero of it is a guy, the way that Paul is described is he's kind of described as stocky with a unibrow, kind of ugly, and this is the guy that's the champion of Christianity. Oh, wait, stop. He also has health issues. And some of these might be health issues that people would say, I don't want to get around this guy. I mean, one of the theories is because of his missionary journeys, he had malaria. Who's going to get around him? I'd be like me in the grocery store a couple of days ago. I sneezed twice, and everybody looked at me while I was out in public. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And I told them, I have corona. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> I did not do that. You know why? The pollen count is extraordinarily high. I just had some sneezes. That's it. But everybody was looking at me like, what are you doing? And the answer is, getting food. What are y'all doing? Paul, we don't know. He was so concerned that his physical affliction was going to stop the message. And God says, no, no, no. It's going to advance it. Just watch. He says, but that's how I came to you. Galatians 4, I came to you ill. Some, John Calvin, by the way, said, don't know. He might be concerned because he was already facing persecution because of his faithfulness. I'm coming to you in weakness. We're not sure. But here's what he did say. For everything that God is doing, he's doing it because of, you see in 1 Corinthians 2, because it's a movement of the Spirit's power. The Holy Spirit is doing something through Paul that Paul couldn't have done without the Holy Spirit. So he wasn't trying to manipulate anybody. He just wanted them to know the Lord. He wasn't trying to make and, and, and craft an argument for them. He just wanted them to know the Lord. And he said, the greatest proof of anything that I can tell you, Paul's saying, 
is look at the lives that have been changed when they really encountered Jesus. Look at that. People that had before, literally there was a thousand temple prostitutes. You would go into the temple and commit ritual sex acts. These are the people that were coming to Christ. And Paul says, look at the change when they chose to follow him. Just look at them. One of the most brilliant people, uh, defenders of the Christian faith that is alive right now is a man named William Lane Craig. He's absolutely brilliant. When I was teaching at a and I remember some of the professors there because he was coming to speak at the campus. And I remember talking with some of the professors and they said, you know, that guy's a genius. And if you're standing on a campus and people are calling a guy a genius, it's because they're a genius. They'll say there's a difference between somebody that's kind of smart and a genius. He's a genius. But even William Lane Craig will say this, the greatest proof of the truth of Christianity is the changed lives when people embody it. It changes you. And Paul was saying the same thing here. Aren't you glad that somebody actually shared the gospel with a guy like uh, Paul, who was busy at that time trying to kill Christians? Aren't you glad that Jesus appeared to him? Aren't you glad that Barnabas took him in? Aren't you glad that the disciples didn't say, you just welcomed a murderer in the ranks. What's wrong with you? Aren't you glad? Because this guy changed the world. Let me tell you another story, though. In 1855, there was a guy named Edward Kimball. How many of you ever heard of Edward Kimball? How many of you ever heard of the year 1855? (laughs) Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher in Chicago. Any Sunday school teachers out there? Can I get those hands up? Thank you. You do a good work. Hey, I'm going to encourage you for just a minute. So Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher in Chicago. He led a 19-year-old shoe clerk to Jesus. The shoe clerk eventually became a world-famous evangelist who led thousands and thousands and thousands of people to Jesus. His name was Dwight L. Moody, uh, who the Moody Bible Institute is named after. I'm not done. In 1879... Moody influenced the well-educated and cultured British theologian, Frederick Meyer. And he encouraged him because he said, your preaching has to change. It's a little dry, brother. So he changed. And later on, a preaching trip to America, Meyer influenced a discouraged young preacher named Wilbur Chapman to become an effective evangelist. Thousands of people come to Christ. As his work grew, he needed an assistant And so he hired a former baseball player with a high school education to help him out. His name was Billy Sunday. And he eventually led more than a million people to Jesus Christ. In 1924, while Billy Sunday was preaching in Charlotte, North Carolina, a prayer group was formed that later invited another evangelist by the name of Mordecai Ham. To preach. And it was while Mordecai Ham was preaching that a teenager named Billy Graham gave his life to Jesus Christ. And Billy Graham has told more people about Jesus, I think, than anybody in history. Guess where it all started? In 1855, a year that you all recognized, but a man that you didn't, Edward Kimball, it started in a Sunday school room. Never underestimate what is happening in a Sunday school room. It is usually the slow and consistent work of the faithful that sets the road 
for this to happen. That's the fact. You are the light of the world. But most of us, honestly, we're just ordinary change agents. It's what we are. I mean, who in the world would have thought that the Lord would have called a guy out of Mineola, Texas, who worked baseball fields to be a pastor? That's me if you're trying to figure it out. You know what? I didn't see it coming. But here we are. You make a difference. You make a difference far more than you probably will ever know. So some lessons that I want you to take from this text this morning. And here's the first. The gospel is about going to people. And when I use the word gospel, friends, if you've never heard that, that word before, it means we've got good news. We have got good news. There are two things that we want you to know today is that God is gracious and loving. We also want you to know that we are all sinners and his grace is sufficient. It's enough. You don't have to look for more. But the gospel is about going to people. Did you catch the way that Paul even started this? He said, when I came to you, when I came to you. Matthew chapter 28, the, the, great, the great commission, go, go. That should be a theme of every church on the planet. Not y'all come on, it's we're coming to you. We're coming because we need you to. When I came to you, and he even describes it. I, I came to you, I was scared. Some of you have conversations with people that don't know the Lord, and you go into it, you go, I am scared. I mean, what if they ask a question that I don't know the answer to? Fair enough. I think Paul felt that way. What do you think? And he's pretty honest about it, but you know what he did? He still did it. He still did it. Uh, there was a, a really interesting conversation. You remember I mentioned Dwight L. Moody before? There was a lady that talked to, to Moody one time, asking about how it was that he shared the gospel. And he goes, well, there, here's some things that I do. And so he was talking about, she goes, well, I don't like that. And he goes, well, I like the way that I do it more than the way you don't. <laughs> when I came to you. Church, I have a question for you this morning. Are you going to anybody? Or are you hoping that there's just something here that will inevitably attract somebody to show up? One of these things is biblical, and one of these things is not. I, 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 want to, I want to give you a strategy today, something to think about. And here's the first, is I want you to identify one person. One person. And by the way, if you take an honest look at your life, I promise you there are a lot of people around you that don't know the Lord. What, what I hope for them is that they would find Christ so that they can have the hope and salvation that you've got. That's why we're having the talk today. I want you to identify one. Second, I want you to commit them to prayer. I mean every day. If you have to literally set your clock so that when it beeps, you can pray for them, set your clock so that it beeps so that you can pray for them. That God would be working in their heart and that God would be using you in a powerful way. Just like he used somebody like Paul and just like he used somebody in a Sunday school classroom. God, use me. Third, I want you to invest in their life. People are not a project. People are not a project. When I say invest in their life, I mean just love people like Jesus loved you. Just love them. Be present. Show, show them what Jesus is really all about. And then finally, I want you to invite them. I want you to invite them to church. And I want you to invite them to Christ. Somebody has done it for you. People did it for me. And it's our job to keep it going. And we see this from Paul. So that's the first thing. 
The gospel is about going. The second thing, we share the gospel out of our weaknesses. We do. Do you know how I came to Christ? I came to Christ needy. I didn't come to Jesus strong. I came to Christ saying, I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. I didn't come to him and say, well, I can explain all the reasons I make the choices that I do. I came to him in weakness and in brokenness, and he received me because of his grace and his love. Friends, God uses our flaws. He uses our failures just as much or more as he uses our God-given giftings. He uses them because people connect. People connect to your story just like they were connecting to Paul's. And I want you to remember the third. A changed life is the best defense of the Christian faith. Let me tell you a story. When I was in New Orleans uh, teaching at the seminary and I pastored a church in the Gentilly area of New Orleans, not, not necessarily the easiest place in the world to live. The food, unbelievable. Awesome, right? Highly recommend. But we had this ministry that went into Jackson Square. And some of you have probably been to Jackson Square because you were going there so that you could get some beignets and a cafe au lait. Am I right? Cafe du Monde, all right, if you're wondering. Now, we had this ministry in Jackson Square. And on Sunday mornings, we would go in early into Jackson Square, and we would feed people. That's where the homeless would be. Not too far from there is Bourbon Street, just so you know. And you know the things that happen on Bourbon Street. And so the homeless would really just, that's just where they would be. And so we would go in on a Sunday morning. We would be feeding uh, people, and we would, do, we would basically do a worship service in Jackson Square. There was a guy there named Mike. Now, this was actually shortly before I got to New Orleans. There was a guy there named Mike. Now, if you ever looked at Mike, you would think that Mike wants to murder you right now. And I'm not kidding. Because this guy had a shaved head. He had a very difficult past, both with drug and alcohol abuse. I mean, off the chart. He had, his head was shaved. He had tattoos all the way up his head. And through that ministry, Mike came to know Jesus. Now, you fast forward a little bit. Mike was active in the church. He was one of the greeters at the door, just so you know. That was great. But Mike became one of the leaders of our AA meetings. And not just our alcoholics. And he helped people that also dealt with drug addiction as well. See, God took a man like Mike broke him down through his grace and his love, gave him a new heart and a new life, and he used his story to be a blessing to people that were in the exact same situation so that just like him, they could come out of it. That is the power that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He's like, I'm not messing with you people. I want you to experience the power of the Spirit and the forgiveness and the goodness of God's grace in your life. That's what I'm offering you today. It's what he said. It changes things. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I, I want to say this. I'm glad you're here. There are some things that we believe that are very, very important to us and explains why we want to talk about these things. Uh, we believe that the messiness of the world is real. It's just we have a word for it. We call it sin. But we believe in the forgiveness of sins. We do. Before his break with the Catholic Church, Martin Luther went to confession every day, every day. And he was so guilt-ridden by his sin, he said he would have gone literally every hour. When Luther slept well, or at least so the story goes, when Luther slept well, he even felt guilty about that, thinking, well, here I am, sinful, having a good night's sleep. 
So the next morning, he would go to the priest and he'd confess that. That's not sinful, by the way. You were wondering, so I just wanted to say it. Now, one day, the older priest to whom Martin Luther went to confession told him, Martin, either find a new sin and commit it or quit coming to see me. I mean, that brother was tired. (laughs) But Luther was tormented by it, which is probably why when it came to the Apostles' Creed, there's this one line in it that he said is the most important of it all. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. He said it's the most important. Here's what Scripture says. In Psalm 103, 12, he, that is God, removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. In Micah chapter 7, verse 19, it says he buries them in the deepest sea. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, it says he blots them out. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34, it says he remembers them no more. Ah, here's the deal. If we don't own up, we can't be forgiven. If we don't own up, you have to accept the diagnosis before you can receive the cure. And you have to admit that there's a problem before you can apply a solution. Here's what scripture tells us today, is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that amazing? And it still blows me away to this day. It's something that in the morning I wake up and I'm very aware of, Lord, here I am, a sinner. Would you use me well today? But every day, I know I'm just not quite there yet. It's just not the whole story, though. Because the rest of the story is, I have his grace. I have his presence. I have his spirit that lives within me. And he's changing me every day. Isn't that an amazing story? Yours can be like that. Yours can be like Mike's. Maybe you're not coming off of the streets of the French Quarter with drug and alcohol addiction. You know what, though? You do have your own story. You do have your own brokenness. And just like Mike, you have your own need of Jesus Christ. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.